Welcome back to the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. You are listening to one of a series of lectures given by Caitlin Carl during our summer study through the Book of Mark. For Caitlin's lecture slides and additional study resources for the Book of Mark, please visit DaytonWomenInTheWord.com slash Mark resources. Lord, would you be with us as we hear from you this evening? And may we leave here not just with more head knowledge, but with hearts that are changed and that are committed to living a lifetime of loving and serving you. I pray that this lecture would be for the glory of your name, and it is in Jesus's great name that I pray. Amen. All right, and we're going to say our memory verse. This is the last week I'm going to give it to you. Next week, we're not going to have the slide to look on. Okay, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. Awesome. So I'm going to start with a brief recap from last week. So we saw that the opposition against Jesus is growing to the level that the Pharisees are starting to plan how to kill him. Then Jesus called the 12 apostles into ministry with him, and we looked at how our calling today is largely the same. Then we talked about the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We heard Jesus speak in many parables about the kingdom of God, and we saw the importance of having ears to hear and always being ready to listen attentively to what the Lord is teaching us. And lastly, we saw Jesus exercise his authority over nature, disease, and death, demonstrating over and over again that he is the promised king come to usher in the kingdom of God, even if it's not quite what the Jews were expecting. And we also looked briefly at how to discern God's will and at the messianic secret. So where are we going today? We're going to look at the theme of rejection. Then we're going to see how Jesus is the shepherd king, And lastly, we'll get to the heart of the matter, which is split into two parts divided by a little section about salvation being not just for the Jew, but also for the Greek. And I'm going to give you fair warning that there is a lot to cover tonight. So there are going to be a few times that I'm going to give you a scripture reference, but I'm not actually going to have time to read it. It'll be on the screen, so make sure you write it down and look it up later. And this lecture might feel very fast-paced as we're jumping from story to story, but we wouldn't be studying Mark if things didn't happen immediately, right? So hold on to your hats, and here we go. Okay, chapter 6 opens with Jesus arriving in his hometown of Nazareth with his disciples. We find him teaching in the synagogue for the final time in this gospel. And as the people listen to him, they're astonished. But then they start wondering, wait a second, we know this guy. Isn't he a carpenter? And isn't this Mary's son? And don't his siblings still live here in Nazareth? And what began as astonishment quickly becomes offense. They don't understand how this man with such humble beginnings has gained such wisdom, and it really upsets them. Jesus responds to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So notice that Jesus has just identified himself as a prophet. And we're told that he could do no mighty works there, except for a few healings. The rejection of the people of Nazareth, their refusal to believe, 
robs them of the experience of Jesus's power. And now, instead of the crowds marveling at him, which has been the typical reaction up until now, Jesus is the one left marveling at the unbelief of these people. But again, we see that he didn't come to be a miracle worker. He came to teach about the kingdom of God and to call people to repentance. So while he can't do many mighty works because of their rejection and unbelief, he still goes around and teaches among the villages. Next, we cut to a scene where Jesus is with his 12 apostles, and he begins to send them out. The purpose for which he called them back in chapter 3, that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons, is now their commission. But he doesn't just say, bye, see you later. He prepares and equips them for the work ahead. First, he gives them each a partner. No one goes out alone. Next, he gives them authority over unclean spirits. If they're going out to engage in spiritual battle, they need to have the ability to defeat the enemy. And even though Mark doesn't mention it, the coming verses allow us to infer that he also gives them authority to heal and charges them to preach. Next, he charges them not to take anything for their journey except a staff and sandals. No food, no bag, no money, and no second tunic. They are to travel light. And not only does this encourage their reliance on God for provision, but it lessens the list of things other than the mission that they need to worry about. And it allows for greater freedom to move around. Jesus also tells them that whenever they enter a house, they must remain there until they depart. But, he warns them, expect to be rejected. Just as Jesus' own hometown rejected him, the very Son of God in their midst, how much more will these mere men face rejection as they travel around? If any place doesn't receive them and will not listen to them, Jesus says, they are to shake off the dust of their feet as a testimony against them when they leave. It was a Jewish practice at that time to shake the dust off of your sandals when you returned to the Holy Land from any Gentile territory so that you didn't bring any of the uncleanliness back into the clean zone of God's people. It seems, then, that Jesus is communicating to the disciples that those who refuse his message of repentance also refuse his cleansing and thus remain unclean in their sin. And so the 12 go out and they proclaim that people should repent, which is the same message that John the Baptist cried, the same message that Jesus proclaimed, and the same message that we are charged to share today. And speaking of John the Baptist, he seems to randomly reappear here in Mark's account as we're told the story of his death. And since Mark doesn't tend to give such lengthy accounts, this story is especially strange, but clearly important since Mark gives it so much paper space or stone space, I suppose. Let's take a look. Okay, so this King Herod is Herod Antipas. He's the seventh son of Herod the Great, who was the Herod in power when Jesus was born. The Herod in our story today is actually not a king at all, rather a tetrarch or an administrator for the regions of Galilee and Perea serving under Rome. Herod hears about Jesus because Jesus is ever increasing because of Jesus's ever-increasing fame, and we learn that at this time there are three prevailing beliefs about whom Jesus might be. 
Some said that he was John the Baptist, come back to life. And it was because he had been raised from the dead that he had such miraculous powers. Others said he was Elijah, because it was foretold that the prophet Elijah would come back before the end of time. And lastly, some believe Jesus to be a prophet, like one of the Old Testament prophets who spoke the words of God to his people. And we learn that Herod is in the John the Baptist come back to life camp because he's haunted by John's death at his hand. And then we get the full story. Evidently, John had been telling Herod that he was in the moral wrong for having married his still living brother's wife. Herod has John seized and thrown in jail because this wife, Herodias, has a grudge against him because of the words he has spoken. She and her now husband have been called out for their sin, and she doesn't like it. Have you ever noticed that people seem to get the most violently upset when they're confronted with the truth, and they know it's the truth, but they really don't want to hear it? Well, Herodias really dislikes John and his truth so much that she wants to see him put to death, but she can't make it happen because Herod fears John. The text tells us that Herod knew John to be a righteous and holy man and that he enjoyed hearing him speak, even though it left him greatly perplexed. And now we come to this three-letter word in the text, but, B-U-T. This is a great word to pay attention to while you're doing your studies because it's a good indication that things are about to change. And that's exactly what we see here. Herodias wants John to die, but couldn't do anything about it because her husband feared John. But suddenly, the opportunity to get what she wants presents itself. Herod is throwing a birthday party for himself, and all the important men in Galilee are there. Herodias's daughter was apparently the entertainment for the evening, and her dancing greatly pleased everyone in attendance. As a show of thanks to her, Herod offers to give her whatever she asks, up to half his kingdom, which turns out to not really be something he can offer, since he's not a king and doesn't have a kingdom. Nevertheless, the girl immediately consults with her mother about what she should ask for, and Herodias seizes the opportunity, replying, the head of John the Baptist. The daughter relays this request to Herod, and he is exceedingly sorry. But then, here's that word again. Sorry, iPad issues here. But, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. No matter how sorry he may have felt, he wasn't willing to risk tarnishing his reputation to spare John's life. So he immediately has John beheaded, and his head is presented on a platter to the girl, who then gives it to her mother. And upon hearing of John's unfortunate death, his disciples come, take his body, and lay him in a tomb. Okay, so this is a really interesting story, but what is it doing here in Mark's gospel? Well, it certainly leaves us with a sense of ominous foreboding, but other than setting a rather, setting a rather dismal tone, I think this account accomplishes a couple of things. First, it closes, in a sense, the opening portion of this gospel, which began with John the Baptist. We saw his beginning, and now we're seeing his end. And second, perhaps Mark means this account as a foretaste of what's to come for Jesus. Jesus, too, is saying things that aren't popular with certain people, and they are seeking his death, though they're having trouble bringing it about because of Jesus's popularity and because they want to do it cleanly. 
Jesus, too, will be sentenced to his death by a man who was amazed by him, but was more concerned with the satisfaction of the people around him than he was with what was doing right. And after his death, Jesus, too, will be laid in a tomb. John met his death because someone rejected his message of truth, and Jesus will soon face the same fate. Following a rejected king means that we, too, will face rejection in this life. Jesus tells us in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So what does it look like for you to follow the rejected king tonight? If it doesn't look any different than what the world is doing, perhaps the Lord is calling you to examine yourself and consider how you can truly live your life for your king. Okay, so now Mark abruptly cuts back to the apostles who had been sent out just as they are now returning from their journey. They come back to Jesus and they tell him all that they had done and taught. I wonder if you've ever been on a trip that was a truly incredible experience and when you get back, all you want to do is talk about it. And I imagine that these disciples are just tripping over each other and probably even over their own words, trying to relate to Jesus all that had happened while they were gone. And Jesus' response to their return is this, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Having returned from doing the work for which he sent them, Jesus speaks rest. He cares for the well-being of his disciples. And doesn't he say the same to us, dear sisters? We go week after week after week into the world to do the work of the kingdom, whether that be mothering, wifing, teaching, engineering, nursing, praying, studying, whatever your current God-given roles are, that is your kingdom work. And when we come back from our time out in the field, if you will, Jesus says, rest. Remember that he taught earlier that man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. It's meant to be a blessing. The Lord invites us into a rhythm of work and rest, work and rest. Are you neglecting to take hold of this gift from your good father? And what steps can you take this week to begin instituting a work-rest rhythm into your life? As the disciples are getting into a boat with Jesus to seek out a desolate place, they're recognized by the ever-present crowd, and this crowd sees where they're growing, going and runs ahead of them on foot so that they beat them to their destination. And this was probably about a 10-mile run. Again, we see the desperation of these people to be near to Jesus. They simply cannot get enough of him. So when they arrive at the shore, rather than finding a nice, desolate place to rest, the disciples find the crowd. Now, based on what Jesus just said to the disciples about resting, you might expect that he would tell the crowd, I'm sorry, but we need some downtime right now or something along those lines. But instead, Mark tells us that Jesus saw the great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. This phrase harkens back to an Old Testament prophecy from Ezekiel 34. 
Here, God is speaking through Ezekiel about the failure of the shepherds or the leaders of Israel to take care of their sheep. The whole of Ezekiel chapter 34 is worth taking the time to read, but I'm just going to read a few verses here. Thus says the Lord, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Those charged by God with the care of his people have failed, and now God himself is here to tend his flock. In John 10, we read that Jesus is the good shepherd, the one that Ezekiel foretold the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And seeing these wandering lost sheep on the shore, he can't help but teach them. Yes, rest is important, but sometimes it has to wait for the furtherment of the kingdom. Jesus came to seek and save the lost and to teach the gospel and the need for repentance. And that is the driving force of his every decision, no matter how tired he may be at the moment. So what drives your decisions, comfort or kingdom? But after a while of teaching, his disciples come to him concerned about the people getting hungry and that they'll need to travel to find food because they're currently in a desolate place. Jesus' response seems almost comical. Will you give them something to eat? And they reply rather sarcastically, that would cost more than half a year's wages to feed all of these people. Is that seriously what you want us to do? Jesus sends them into the crowd to find out what they have at their immediate disposal, and they return with the response, five loaves and two fish. Jesus then commands the crowd to sit down in groups, and after they've done so, he takes the food before him, looks up into heaven, blesses the food, breaks it, and gives it to the disciples to give to the people. And then we read, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. And that number doesn't even include any women or children who may have been present. A new authority has revealed itself in Jesus, his authority over physical elements. He is the shepherd king come to rescue his sheep, and he will not only provide for their spiritual, but also for their physical needs. 
the good shepherd takes care of the sheep. And as soon as they've gathered up the leftover food, Jesus sends his disciples ahead of him in the boat to Bethsaida. He stays, dismisses the crowd, and then he goes up on the mountain to pray. The rest that Jesus was seeking earlier when he turned aside to care for the sheep is now available to him, and he uses the time to speak with his father. Jesus shows us that his rest is not only physical rest, but spiritual rest and rejuvenation that is found in time spent in communion with the Lord. So is this what your rest looks like? Or do you tend to gravitate towards a more worldly rest that doesn't actually bring you any rest at all? Evening comes and Jesus looks out on the sea only to notice that the disciples are making headway painfully for the wind was against them. So between the hours of 3 and 6 a.m., Jesus goes to them on the water without a boat, walking atop the liquid sea. He means to pass them by, not necessarily because he doesn't want to be with them, but possibly because he wanted them to just see him walking by on water and recognize his deity, to glimpse his divine glory, even if just for a moment, similar to how the glory of the Lord passed before Moses in the book of Exodus. But instead of seeing his divinity, the disciples think he's a ghost, and they're all terrified. But immediately Jesus speaks calm to them. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And these words bring to mind so many other times in scripture when the charge, do not fear, appears. But most immediate to our context are the times in the preceding chapters when Jesus gave faith as an antidote to fear. In chapter 4, when the disciples fear because of the raging storm. And in chapter 5, when Jesus charges the ruler of the synagogue, whose daughter has just died, not to fear, only believe. The disciples are a little slow to remember, as we all so often are. And so Jesus reminds them, do not be afraid. And then he gets into the boat with them and the wind stops. And then Mark tells us they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The dictionary defines astounded as shocked or greatly surprised. So the disciples are afraid because they see Jesus walking on the water and think him to be a ghost. And then they're greatly surprised when he gets in the boat with them and the wind stops. And Mark tells us that it's because they did not understand and their hearts were hardened. And if you're like me, your first thought is, how is this possible? These are the men who have been following Jesus around as he preached, cast out demon after demon, healed person after person, who heard Jesus calm the storm with his very words, who just returned from their own tour of preaching, healing, and casting out demons, and who just watched Jesus turn five loaves and two fish into enough food to feed 5,000 men with leftovers. How can they possibly not understand? But as baffling as it seems, Mark tells us that they are still blind to Jesus's true identity and their hearts are hardened. Jesus is not fitting into their preconceived ideas about who the Messiah would be. He's not the authoritative militaristic king that they were expecting and they just can't see past it. 
They don't have a category for what they're seeing in Jesus, their shepherd king who loves them and cares for them, who shows compassion and who stops to feed hungry people. And because he doesn't fit their image of a king, they are missing the point altogether. But how often do we find ourselves in the same boat? No pun intended. How often do we put God in a box, so to speak, and miss the work that he's doing because it doesn't fit our idea of how God works? How often do we forget what the Lord has done for us in the past and we respond in fear when we're confronted with a new but similar circumstance? So what are some ways that you can keep track of the Lord's work in your life and set up stones of remembrance so that come what may, you can remember to trust because he has been and always will be faithful to care for you as your shepherd king. While the hard-hearted disciples and Jesus reach their next destination, and when they get out of the boat, Jesus is immediately recognized. The people where they landed run throughout the whole region and bring sick people to Jesus. No matter where he goes, Jesus can hardly take a step without finding a sick person lying in his path, and the people are imploring him to touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. And so again, we see the fame of Jesus and the authority of Christ over disease as he is recognized here in Gennesaret. So as chapter 7 opens, we learn that some Pharisees, along with some of their scribes who had come from Jerusalem, are again sitting and nitpicking every action of Jesus and his disciples. In chapter 3, we saw people coming from almost 100 miles away just to be near him. And now, as the opposition increases, men are traveling just as far for the purpose of investigating and accusing him. Remember that the Pharisees at this point are actively seeking to destroy Jesus. And this time, they're focused on how Jesus and his disciples eat with unwashed or defiled hands. Mark gives a little explanation for this in verses 3 and 4, explaining that good Jews only eat when their hands are properly washed through ritualistic cleansing, which is a tradition of the elders. And many other traditions are also observed by them to make sure that everything is properly cleansed. When the Pharisees question Jesus about it, he responds by calling them hypocrites and quoting to them from the prophet Isaiah, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of of God, Jesus says, and hold to the tradition of men. And now Jesus really starts to go after them. He brings up a very specific example of how they value their own traditions over God's commandments. And he references something called Corban. Corbin, meaning given to God, was a tradition of the elders that allowed funds or goods to be dedicated to the Lord. And when something was dedicated to the Lord, it was too good for ordinary things, and it could not be given to someone else. So instead of honoring his father and mother, as God commanded in the fifth commandment, a son could say to his mother, who needs something from him, Oh, I'm sorry. I can't give that to you. It's Corbin. This relieved the child of the burden of caring for his parents, but in an acceptable way. Man created a loophole 
to get around God's actual command by making their selfishness seem holy. And this is just one example of many such things, Jesus says. Jesus is not interested in our lip service. He wants our hearts. And the Pharisees have completely missed the mark. But lest we be too quick to judge, let's think of how often we also get it wrong. Can you think of any traditions of man that you hold to that might be going against God's good commands? Or maybe, I'll put it this way, a popular view that you hold to or believe in, even though it's against God's word? Or how many times have we used the Lord's work as an excuse for not doing the real work that we're called to do? Having addressed the errancy of their traditions, Jesus now turns to the specific matter of, at hand, that of eating with cleansed hands. It seems that Jesus may have been privately addressing the Pharisees and scribes in the previous passage, and now, having finished with them, he calls the crowd back to him to continue his teaching. He tells them that nothing from the outside can defile a person by entering him. Rather, it is what comes from within a man that renders him defiled. This brief statement is all that Mark records Jesus saying to the crowd, for now he leaves the people and enters a house with his disciples, who then question him about what he has just said. And again, we see that the disciples are lacking in their understanding. Do you not see, Jesus says, that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. In the Old Testament, God does give a list of animals that were clean and permissible to eat, and those that were unclean and forbidden as food by law. But Jesus fulfills the demands of the law through his death on the cross, and thus the ceremonial laws, such as making distinctions between clean and unclean animals, and the need for ritual cleansing, are no longer required. The cleanliness that used to be found in these practices is now found in Jesus. 1 John 1.7 reads, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Instead, Jesus says, it's what comes out of the heart of man that defiles him. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Just as the heart was the issue for the disciples when they didn't understand in the boat, we see that the heart is the true issue for all mankind. The parable of the sower showed us that we must have soft, receptive hearts, ready to take in the word of God and let his kingdom grow within us. Jesus just told the Pharisees that they honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Clearly, the heart is of great importance to the Lord. We can change and modify the behaviors of ourselves and others all day long, but if the heart issue is left unaddressed, we're no better off for acting rightly. And we see this theme throughout scripture. Um, and I'm not going to read these, but just a few examples. Deuteronomy 4.9, 9, 
Psalm 24, 3 and 4, Jeremiah 9, 8, and Jeremiah 17, 9, and there are many, many more of how much emphasis God places on the state of our hearts. And we should be placing just as much emphasis there. Our hearts are depicted throughout scripture as the seats of our emotions, our minds, and our wills. Their care cannot be neglected. So how do we do that? Well, we could spend an entire summer talking about that topic, but I'll just give you this for tonight. Philippians 4, 4 through 7 reads, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Rejoice. Do not be anxious. Pray. Ask the Lord for things with thanksgiving. And the peace of God will guard your hearts. What better watchman could we ask for than the very peace of God over our hearts and minds? So ask the Lord tonight to guard your heart with his peace. Ask him, as the psalmist does, to create in you a clean heart. Ask him to give you a soft, receptive heart that understands and that is undivided. Tending our hearts is not something that happens just once, but it's a lifelong task. So ask tonight and then keep asking. So as we move to verse 24, we see that Jesus goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. This was a Gentile region, but still Jesus was known there. We saw in chapter 3 that people were coming from, to Capernaum from Tyre and Sidon to be near Jesus, and now he has gone to them. Jesus came first to the Jews, giving God's chosen people the first opportunity to turn and repent but he also knew that a future time was coming when the word would be preached to the Jews and the Gentiles. And these next verses foreshadow that time. Upon arrival, he enters a house and hopes to go unnoticed, but of course, that does not happen. A woman comes to him and falls at his feet, begging him to cast a demon out of her daughter. Mark points out that she was a Syrophoenician, or in other words, a Gentile, not a Jew, and unclean by Jewish tradition. Jesus says to her, let the children or the Jews be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs or the Gentiles. It's slight and almost imperceptible, but within Jesus's statement, there is a word of hope. Let the children be fed first. This implies that there is a time coming when the food will be made fully available to the Gentiles as well, but that time is not yet. The woman, however, grasps the hope contained in that one little word, the hope that there might be something the Lord will do for her, and with quick wit responds, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Did anyone else feel like that was like a mic drop moment? I mean, that is like quite the response. But notice that she does not shirk the Lord's words to her about her rightful place, but accepts her position as a dog 
as one who does not have a seat at the table, at least not yet, and she asks only for that which the children have left behind. And as we've seen in the previous verses and chapters, there are plenty of crumbs being dropped by the children. Jesus tells her that because of her statement, the demon has left her daughter, and she goes home and finds that his words are true. Her faith gains her an early taste of the feast that is yet to come. And now Jesus travels on to another Gentile region, one to which Jesus has been before, the Decapolis. Remember that this is where he cast the legion of demons out of the man who lived among the tombs and then charged the healed man with sharing his story with everyone. And perhaps it was based on that man's testimony that the people understand Jesus's power and they proceed to bring him a man who is deaf and has a speech impediment, begging Jesus to lay his hands on him. Differently from previous healings, Mark tells us that Jesus takes this man aside from the crowd, privately. He puts his fingers in his ears and, after spitting, touches the man's tongue. Jesus then looks up to heaven, sighs, and says to the man, be opened. And of course, the man's ears are opened and his speech returns to normal. In a change from the last time he was in the Decapolis, Jesus charges the people who witnessed the miraculous healing not to say anything. His request has an inverse reaction, however, as the more he charges the people not to say anything, the more they go out and proclaim what he has done. And the chapter ends with this response from the people. They're astonished. And they say, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And in this saying, we hear the echoes of a prophecy spoken long ago by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 35. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. God promised long ago that he would come and save his people. And he told them what it would look like when he did. And now Jesus is the living, breathing fulfillment of that promise, unstopping the ears of the deaf, deaf and loosing the tongues of the mute. And then as chapter eight opens, we see that again, a great crowd has gathered and again, they have nothing to eat. Calling the disciples to him, Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. He's concerned that if he sends them away, some of them will faint before they make it home because they've come from far off. And astonishingly, the disciples reply, how can one feed all of these people with bread here in this desolate place? And how in the world can they ask this question when it has not been that long since they watched Jesus feed 5,000 men in another desolate place? This is an almost identical situation, and yet they're clueless. Their question demonstrates that they still don't understand who Jesus is. These men are the very descendants of men and women who were fed with bread in a desolate place. About 1,500 years before this moment, 
when the Israelites were in the wilderness, after they had been rescued from under the hand of the Egyptians, we read these words in Exodus 16. I, this is God speaking, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And in the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. God miraculously provided bread in a desolate place for his people. And his son is about to do the same thing for a second time. But the disciples are blind to Jesus's true identity, and they seem to suffer from short-term memory loss. Jesus asks them the exact same question that he did last time, how many loaves do you have? And they reply, seven. And they also had a few small fish. And just as before, Jesus directs the crowd to sit down. He takes the food before him, gives thanks, breaks it, and gives it to the disciples to set before the people. And once again, we read that they ate and were satisfied. And there were seven baskets full of food left over from the 4,000 people who shared a meal of seven loaves and a few small fish. Jesus sends them all away, and he and his disciples immediately get in the boat and go to Dalmanutha. Now you might be wondering, why are these two very similar stories both told so closely together here in Mark? Well, as we've seen throughout Mark, miracles aren't really about the miracles themselves. Rather, they serve to reveal a greater spiritual truth. Many of the miracles in Mark so far have served Mark's purpose of defending his assertion that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. They've shown his authority over all aspects of life, both spiritual and physical. And the two miraculous feeding stories certainly do show us that Jesus has authority over the physical world, but they also communicate the deeper truth that Jesus cares about and is able to provide far above and beyond our needs. And even deeper than that, these stories invite us to come to Jesus for food and not just the provision of something to actually physically eat, though that is certainly something we can ask for, but to feast on him, the bread of life, for the satisfaction of our spiritual hunger and for eternal life. In John chapter six, we read, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, 
he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The bread for life is the flesh of Christ. And these two meals are a foretaste of the Lord's Supper that Jesus will institute with his disciples not too long from now. In a few weeks, we'll read these words in Mark 14. He took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Does that sound familiar? In performing this miracle twice, First, in Galilee, which is Jewish land, and now, most likely still in the Decapolis, which is Gentile land, Jesus is communicating the same message that he gave the Syrophoenician woman. I came first for the Jews, but I'm also here for the Gentiles. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And note that Greek here is referring to Gentiles in general, not exclusively people from Greece. And we see that the bread of life is for all who would come and eat of it. And that includes you, sisters. So have you feasted on the bread of life lately? Have you eaten of his word, which is sweeter than honey? Have you rested in his steadfast love, which is better than life? If you are a believer, have you participated in communion, in the Lord's Supper, and been strengthened by the bread and the cup? And if you haven't yet given your life to Christ, will you taste and see that the Lord is good? He will satisfy, and you will find nourishment. In verse 11, upon arrival in Dalmanutha, the Pharisees again appear to argue with and test Jesus. They want him to provide a sign from heaven to prove that he is the Son of God, the promised Messiah. And we read that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. Just as he sighed over the man's physical state of being deaf and mute, he now sighs over the Pharisee's state of being spiritually blind. Why do you need a sign, he says. I tell you that you will not get one. And he gets back in the boat and leaves. His words and his miracles have clearly shown his divinity. And if the Pharisees had soft, receptive hearts, they would see it. But because their hearts are hard, they don't recognize the miracle standing right before them. In the boat, the disciples realize that they only have one loaf of bread to share between them all on their journey. This talk of bread leads Jesus to caution them against the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven is a substance, typically yeast, that is used in dough to make it rise. It only takes a little bit to make its way throughout the whole lump of dough, and it's something that easily takes over once it is allowed entrance. Coming from the conversation immediately preceding this statement from Jesus, it seems that the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod is likely that of their unbelief and of their hard-hearted refusal to see Jesus for who he is. He's warning his disciples to take care, lest the resistance of the Pharisees should begin to affect them as well. It seems as though the disciples miss that Jesus is communicating a spiritual warning, however, because they continue discussing the literal bread that they literally don't have. Jesus knows what they're talking about, and he addresses them, beginning in verse 17. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts Harden? 
Having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear and do you not remember? This is the refrain that we heard over and over last week. When Jesus told a parable, he would say, he who has ears, let him hear. And we also saw in chapter 4, verse 34, that Jesus explained all of the parables privately to his disciples. So these men are getting the inside scoop on all of Jesus' teaching, and they're still failing to fully grasp who Jesus is. At this point, they're getting close, so close to a proper grasp. And it's even likely that they understand at the head level that Jesus is the Son of God that he has absolute authority over all of life and creation and that he is the Messiah, but their hearts are still lagging behind. And again, we see the importance that, are, that is placed on our hearts. They haven't been able to take what they know to be true in their head and transfer that knowledge to their hearts where they can apply what they know. In their current situation, for example, they know that Jesus has the power and ability to feed the many from meager means, but they fail to see how that applies to their current situation. And I think we can often find ourselves in this same predicament. We can study and study and know so much in our heads, but when a real life situation presents itself, we fail to take what we know to be true about our Savior and apply it to what's right in front of us. We know that God is good, but when a loved one receives a cancer diagnosis or a spouse loses a much-needed job, do we live like we really believe that God is good? Or we might know that God forgives our sins when we confess them, but are we living as forgiven women? If all of our knowledge never makes it to our hearts, where true change can occur, we haven't really gained anything at all. So where do you need to ask the Lord for help, turning your head knowledge into heart change? Where do you need to practice living out what you know to be true? Ask the Lord tonight for ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to understand the truths that he has revealed and is revealing to you. But ask him not just to hear, see, and understand. Ask also that he, by the work of his Holy Spirit within you, would foster true, lasting heart change. So the disciples arrive at Bethsaida, and some people there bring a blind man to Jesus, begging him to touch him. Mirroring his earlier healing of the deaf and mute man, Jesus takes this blind man away from the crowd and uses physical elements as a part of the healing process rather than just his words or his touch. He spits on the man's eyes, lays his hands on him, and asks him, do you see anything? The man replies that he sees people, but they don't look like people. They look like trees walking. And hearing this, Jesus lays his hand again on the man's eyes, and this time the man's sight is fully restored and he sees everything clearly. Jesus sends him home, charging him to not even enter the village. Why does it seem like Jesus' healing was faulty the first time around? Well, remember that miracles aren't really about the miracle. And so perhaps this is meant to be a picture of the way the disciples only have a fuzzy picture right now of who Jesus is, but they will soon see fully that he is indeed the Messiah. But it also made me think of 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. 
Paul speaks here of the difference between what we understand now and what we will understand when Christ comes again. And perhaps this healing also paints that picture. Right now, things might seem a little fuzzy and strange, but when Jesus comes back, it will all be crystal clear. From this point forward, Jesus will only perform two more miraculous healings on his journey to the cross. And we're only halfway done with Mark. His ministry is going to look a lot different from here. And all of these changes seem to hinge on what comes in verses 27 to 30 of chapter 8. So I'm actually going to stop right here for tonight. The final 11 verses of chapter 8 are more closely tied with what's coming next week in chapter 9. And so I'm going to save them for when we get back together. So really quickly, who is Jesus? He's a teacher, carpenter. He's the son of Mary. He's a prophet. He's rejected. He equips. He sends out. He's caring, compassionate, our shepherd king. He's prayerful. He fulfills the law's demands. He's the bread of life. And he has authority over the physical world, nature, disease, and unclean spirits. And now we can look at how people respond to who Jesus is in these chapters. Negatively, we saw people take offense at Jesus. They mistook him for someone or something he wasn't. They were terrified. They misunderstood his identity, and they had hardened hearts towards who he was. Positively, people followed him. They were astonished by him. They recognized him and they ran to be near him. They fell at his feet. They were astounded by him and they brought before him the sick and they implored him for healing. So how will you respond tonight to who Jesus is? Let's pray. Lord, there was a lot to hear and process tonight. I pray that no woman would walk out of here feeling overwhelmed, but that you would impress upon each heart here a single takeaway that she can apply this week. Bless us as we go from here, and may we feast richly on the bread of life in our studies this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so our homework for next week is just two chapters, um, chapters 9 and 10. And you might want to read, reread those couple verses at the end of chapter 8 that we didn't talk about tonight. So pray, pray, pray. Read those chapters multiple times. Fill out the discussion questions and continue annotating. Your new study tool for this week is looking up definitions of words or word study. I gave a few examples on the screen of words that you could look up, but um, just try to find two or three. And these don't have to be words that are completely new to you. Sometimes looking up a word that you think you know the definition to can really help enhance your study of a particular passage. There are a lot more in-depth things that you can do with word study, um, and Natalie and Jillian laid them out really beautifully in their video about this topic. So even if you haven't watched any of the other videos, I really encourage you to check this one out um, and get some help with the study tool of word study. And that's it. Thanks, ladies.